Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Welcome back to another mini-sode from Fatal Fortunes. I cannot tell how many this episode is going to be because I honestly wrote a lot about Queen Catherine of Aragon. Um, Nathan, do you know anything about her? I don't know anything about Catherine of Aragon. And just looking at how we start episodes, what's happening in 1845, I've got no idea. The, The concept of 600 almost years ago baffles me. So, Yes. And people, honestly, they didn't record that much from history. So jumping right in, Catherine of Aragon was born in 1485. And that same year is the Battle of Bosworth Field, which I actually have a really good book on, where Henry VII becomes the last king to conquer England by conquest. And this is the really big thing of that year. There's also multiple earthquakes in China, and there's a huge solar eclipse. So that's basically all people wrote down for 1485, other than the birth of our subject today. So before we dive into Catherine, it's worth mentioning her background. She is the spawn of some of the most powerful people to have ever lived. Her mother, Isabella, Queen of Castile, and Isabella's great-grandmother was Philippa of Lancaster, who was a daughter of John of Gaunt. I know that if you're not a Tudor history fan, none of this makes any sense, but John of Gaunt was the third son of Edward III, King of England. So... Catherine is an advantageous match, is what I'm trying to say. John of Gaunt had babies on babies on babies. To put this a bit more in perspective, another key player in the Wars of the Roses, Margaret Beaufort, is also a great-great-granddaughter of the same guy, John of Gaunt. She was the mother of Henry VII. So they are definitely cousins, these Spanish and English houses. So for Catherine, marrying into the Tudor family actually gives them the legitimacy that their line is really searching for since, like I said, Henry VII had just conquered by conquest. Her father was Ferdinand II of Aragon. Ferdinand is a cousin of his wife because the ruling families of Castile and Aragon, they've been inbreeding for the prior several centuries. He hypothetically has a claim in his own right to the throne of Castile, but it's pretty distant. Because of her parents' marriage, the three kingdoms they control are united in a personal union, but they are not one country. I want to emphasize that this is the beginning of modern Spain, but this is not what we would know as Spain. In Castile, Isabella takes precedence over Ferdinand and vice versa in Aragon. Before the birth of Catherine, Isabella had six pregnancies, with four resulting in live births. Her elder siblings were Isabella, Queen Consort of Portugal, and Princess of Asturias, which is the name that it's basically the Prince of Wales version for Spain. John, Prince of Asturias. Joanna, Queen Regnant of Castile. And Maria, also Queen Consort of Portugal, after she married her sister's widower, Manuel I of Portugal. And fun fact for me, Isabella and Manuel had a son who, if he had lived, would have united the entire Iberian Peninsula under one crown, but we will never know what could have been. I was just reading something about Spain the other day about how they are asking for a lot of like immigrants to come in because their workforce is super old. So they need all of these young people to come to Spain. Um, But maybe, yeah, maybe we'll all move to Spain and then it just won't be Spain anymore. So like you're talking about (laughs) how this wasn't Spain then, you know, Spain is temporary. 
<laughs> just like all things. Spain's just an idea. It is. Yeah, it's a concept. Catherine was born at Archbishop's Palace of Alsala de Henares. She was born on the night of December 16th, 1485. Because she's the youngest of her siblings, she doesn't really know all of them as well as you might think. By the time she's really cognizant, all of her other siblings have been married off to various royal houses. She's also born during the middle of her parents um, expelling the Muslims from Granada and Al-Andalusia. So she's basically born and growing up in a battlefield. Catherine was quite short in stature. She has long red hair, wide blue eyes, a round face, fair complexion. She studied arithmetic, canon law, civil law, classic literature, genealogy, heraldry, history, philosophy, religion, and theology. I feel like we don't even teach kids all that stuff today. No, I was about to ask, like, what is canon law? Is that just like common or something? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I would love to see, like, studies on the ethics of canons and their legality but maybe canon law is like religious law oh that could also be because as a law student no one has told me what canon law is yep ecclesiastical law perfect there you go that's why we're not hearing about it today she also learned how to speak read and write in spanish and latin and also spoke french and greek She was taught domestic skills such as cooking, dancing, drawing, embroidery, good manners, lace making, music, needlepoint, sewing, spinning, and weaving. Sounds just like me. But it's funny enough, she is not taught English. Even though from the time that she's three years old, the House of Trastamara is saying that they are going to marry her to Arthur, Prince of Wales. So I would think that they would have taught her English at this point. Doesn't really make sense as to why they don't. She was even friends with Erasmus. Erasmus said that Catherine loved good literature, which she had studied with success since childhood. So even though we're not teaching women in the same way that we're teaching men, I think uh, Isabella is really cognizant of the fact that her education was not up to par with someone who would be queen of a country. So she's ensuring that her four daughters never have those handicaps. The marriage is planned from when she's a very young age, but for Ferdinand and Isabella, there's a glaring problem. Edward Plantagenet. 17th Earl of Warwick. He is a legitimate descendant of Edward III as well, and he is a threat to the throne of Henry VII because Henry comes from an illegitimate line and his rights lie in conquest. So little Eddie's father was on the wrong side of the War of the Roses and drowned in a barrel of Momsey wine when Edward was only four years old, and he is made Earl. When he's 10, Richard III is defeated and he's imprisoned in the Tower of London. Sucks. In 1499, Edward is involved in a plot to escape with pretender to the throne, Perkin Warbeck. Perkin Warbeck's a great story, so we might have to dive into that someday. It's a great name, too. Yeah, I think so. And although he's been minding his business in prison for the previous 14 years, he is executed for this offense. A lot of contemporaries in the 1400s believed that this was a response to pressure from Ferdinand and Isabella. Catherine later said that she believed her trials in later life were due to this transgression committed to get her to England. Arthur and Catherine are married by proxy in May 1499, basically right after uh, Edward Plantagenet is killed. And she actually didn't depart Spain until 1501, which I think is weird. Yeah, I guess Why would someone like, do something like that? Is that the honeymoon phase or something? I, I just don't imagine them having something like that back then. So why the two-year wait? I think it's because they're so young. Maybe they don't want to send two 15-year-olds to live Mm. together is the only thing that I could think of. 
Wait, they're both 15 at the time. Yes. Uh, Catherine's a year time. older than Arthur. Wow. So he's he's barely in his teenage years. Yeah. So I think that the problem is, is that they don't think Arthur's old enough to be husband because he's Prince of Wales. So the second he has a wife, they're going to send him to Wales so he can start governing there in his father's stead. And he's going to know how to do that. And I don't think I would have known how to do that as a 14 year old. Life was different. The past was the worst and life was different. Catherine is 15 when she departs for England. She brings with her half of her 200,000 ducat dowry. It's hard to quantify what ancient money would be in current money, but it's over 5 million pounds is what we're talking about. In the interim, the couple had been corresponding in Latin, which was their mutual language. No one had taught Catherine English, like I said, during this period. She arrives in England, meets Arthur, and they find that they speak different dialects of Latin, which I could only imagine sounds like the worst first date ever. Yeah. I mean, it's a dead language for a reason. She has to pick up quickly on her new country's language if she is going to assert any influence. An example of a letter written by Arthur to Catherine from 1499, Arthur referred to Catherine as my dearest spouse and wrote, I cannot tell you what an earnest desire I feel to see your highness and how vexatious to me is this procrastination about your coming. Let it be hastened that the love conceived between us and the wish for joys may reap their proper fruit. Pretty eloquent for a 14, 15 year old. I wish I knew the word vexatious. Right? I'm like, when I was 14, like, <laughs> when's the last time I even used the word vexatious? Are we gonna have to start using this word around each other just so we don't forget that it exists or something? Well, now that we have talked about it, we're going to see it everywhere. That's just, you know, how that works. Catherine and Arthur got married 10 days after her arrival in England at Old St. Paul's Cathedral. So there's St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the place that exists now and where Charles and Diana got married. And then there's Old St. Paul's Cathedral, which was basically the same thing and the same grand scale, but 500 something years ago. So no more. There's like nothing left of Old St. Paul's. Part of me feels like they're on top of each other. Oh, that's pretty dystopic. Yeah, so Old St. Paul's Cathedral stood from uh, 1135-ish. There were a few fires that took it out, and then it stood until 1666 when it was the new St. Paul's Cathedral was put right on top of it. They both wore white satin, which was not a thing for the time. People have not been wearing white to get married. Queen Victoria is really the one that started this trend in the 19th century. So for them to be wearing white satin is a super expensive and not custom. You would just wear your best dress no matter what it was. At the bedding ceremony, Arthur's grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, sprinkles the bed with holy water. The Bishop of London blesses the bed, prays for the marriage should be fruitful, after which the couple are left alone. This is the only public betting ceremony for a royal couple in Britain in the 16th century. And it's like the first year of the 16th century. Allegedly, the morning after the wedding ceremony, Arthur left their room and said, being a husband is thirsty work for I have spent the night in Spain. And again, what 15 year old has such eloquence to make a dirty joke sound that good? He's literally just saying like, I had some good sex last night. We boned. That's but what he walked out there and said. Instead, he hits us with that line. Like, all right, Arthur. For about a month, they stay at Ticken Hill Manor, which still exists today, before they proceed to the traditional seat of the Prince of Wales, which is Ludlow Castle. Arthur had three slash four siblings who were all educated together separately from him. 
But as future king, he's raised farther away to show dominion over Wales and also to, you know, pay thanks to the people who were on Henry VII's side in the war. You would usually give them one of your children as a ward, as a thank you. And, um, you know, Arthur is enjoying governing Wales because it's the first time in forever that there's no actual border disputes. So it's March 1502. Catherine and Arthur both fell ill with what seems to be sweating sickness. This is one of the first outbreaks of sweating sickness that they've ever seen in England. Catherine recovers to find herself a widow because Arthur has died on April 2nd, 1502. He was buried at Worcester Cathedral, which was actually a huge pilgrimage site at the time. Like People don't really go to Worcester for fun when they go to England anymore, but it was a big site back in the day. At this point, Henry VII is faced with the challenge of avoiding the obligation to return the 200,000 ducats to Ferdinand, half of which he still hasn't even gotten yet. And uh, then her father is wondering, do I just recall her to Spain to take holy orders or to marry someone else? Then there's another tragedy in the Tudor family. Following the death of his wife, Elizabeth of York, in February 1503, she actually dies on her birthday, which I think is pretty sad. King Henry actually considers marrying Catherine himself, but the opposition from her father and potential questions over legitimacy of the couple's issue ended those negotiations. I think there are a lot of people um, that I have barely even touched the surface of learning about that are all related to each other royalty-wise. And I just want to do a plug here. There's this guy named Useful Charts. So if you're ever confused about how all these people are related, you can get a two-by-four poster that will tell you. He's really nice. He's Canadian. Useful charts. So while she's the widow of Arthur, Catherine becomes a much less advantageous match to a further tragedy because her mother dies in 1504. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking 1502, you lose your husband. 1503, your mother-in-law dies. 1504, your actual mom dies. Castile had been larger and more robust of the two kingdoms, and now that she's the sister of a queen, not the daughter of a queen, the likelihood of her full dowry being paid is diminished. Eventually, it is agreed that Catherine's going to marry Henry, Duke of York, Arthur's younger brother, five years his junior, which means if Catherine was already older than Arthur, she will be bad older than Henry. During this time, she was housed as meagerly as possible. She's begging her father for money to pay her staff, and now none of her clothes that she originally went to England halfway through puberty fit her anymore. But he says, nope, you are England's problem, Dowager Princess of Wales. At one point during the seven years where the men in her life fight about the negotiations of her future, she asks to be recalled to Spain so she can take holy orders. She's finally like, I'm going to give up. And instead, in a crazy twist of events, she's actually made an ambassador and becomes the first female ambassador in English history. Actually, not English history, Europe as a whole. She's the first female ambassador for all of Europe. To marry Henry, Catherine needs a dispensation from the Pope because having been married to Arthur, that basically makes her Henry's sister, according to church rules. She testified that she and Arthur had never had sex and the dispensation is granted. What I actually learned in further research is that when the Pope granted this dispensation, he said, even if it has been consummated. Like the Latin term can translate to even if or in spite of. That's so strange that um, the church is bending their rules to people who have a lot of power. They wonder, did that all the time. I wonder if they've continued to do that at all. Hmm. 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 Well, there's is- more to go on with the Pope in this story. Oh, my God. It's crazy that, yeah, 
they, it, it's definitely not if only because Arthur literally walked out and just announced to the entire world in that beautiful sentence. I just I had sex with her. So, yeah. In but spite also, of 15 year old boys lie. That's fair. 15 year old boys lie. And Catherine, as devoted as she was and as serious about religion as she was, why would she have lied? So that is definitely the big controversy of Catherine's life. Finally, Henry VII dies in 1509 when his son, Henry, is 17 years old and 10 months. So before his birthday, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the woman from earlier, his grandmother, is acting as his regent. And the wedding takes place on June 11th, 1509, and she's 23 years old. So while she's Queen of England, Henry and Catherine are crowned jointly on June 23rd, 1509 at Westminster Abbey with the English people finding her generally favorable. And this is one of the only joint coronations that you can find. I'm pretty sure that the next joint coronation of man and his wife was in, um, was actually George VI and Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, Queen Mother. in the last oh, century. Because wow. so either the king would already be married to someone or he would or like with james of scotland he was already crowned king mm -hmm. and his wife was already queen of scotland when he came down to england so why coronate her too somebody always dies and has to get replaced and it's just never lined up like this or with the hanoverians they all hated their wives oh shit so <laughs> they would purposefully bar them from said coronations so big deal must have been crazy to be at i can only imagine so Catherine gets pregnant by Henry six times during their marriage, and her first pregnancy is announced in August 1509, which is not what we even do today. Like, we don't announce pregnancies even that early today. It's about eight weeks after the wedding and coronation celebrations. So this is where Catherine's wild reproductive woes really begin. She miscarries this child, a girl, in late January 1510, in this case, her physicians had told her that she was actually pregnant with twins and she went into confinement, but after the miscarriage, thinking she was still to deliver another child, she stays in confinement, but this was probably actually an infection that was keeping her belly swollen and eventually receded. Discussion point, medieval medicine. Were they doing leeches? What's what's going on with the medieval medicine? Oh, that, I don't know. They're I just know. telling her totally wrong shit, and it almost feels like because you have these physicians as a royal woman... Mm -hmm. you're more likely to die because their ideas are, like you said, let's put leeches on her. Let's yeah. tell her to starve for a while. Let's bleed her for a little bit. Yeah. Let's put our that, dirty hand inside right. of her. <laughs> like, yeah, let's not uh, be washing our hands. And now we've got huge swollen infected belly. That is so scary to like, I mean, at this point, she's still so young, um, has announced this pregnancy to everyone. And has to like go through the pain of a miscarriage, and then this is what England knows. Know like, what doing. like there's no newspapers. Mm -hmm. All people know, like they like they're in the middle of the town square, like the queen is pregnant. Blah, 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 blah. So everyone has expectations. There are expectations for the entire country on this woman now. In May 1510, Catherine announced she's pregnant with her second child, a son, which she delivers in January 1511. Henry, Duke of Cornwall, was born at Richmond Palace, where his sister Elizabeth I would die almost 90 years later. In celebration of this boy's birth, Henry gave out wine to the entire population of the kingdom. I wish Joe Biden could do something like that for me. Henry, Duke of Cornwall, he gets christened four days after his birth and his... So, 
not to drop any more names, but his godmother's Margaret of Austria. And Margaret of Austria was Catherine's brother, Juan's widow. So she's Catherine's sister-in-law. That's why she's the godmother. And she's also a regent of the Netherlands, our former home. And then uh, Louis Twelfth, who also shares my birthday, is his godfather. There is a tournament to celebrate the birth, and this is the height of Catherine and Henry's love for one another. However, on February 22nd, 1511, the prince dies suddenly, and the court is consumed with grief. After a 1512 without pregnancies, Catherine is pregnant again by early 15. 13. In June 1513, Catherine is made Regent of England with additional titles of Governor of the Realm and Captain General. So this is what Catherine has been waiting for her whole life. She's raised in the court of her warrior parents who had just done something horrible. But to them, they had just been the crusaders of the world. So she's had this amazing woman to look up to. So she's ready to be at the head of the army is what I'm trying to say. While Henry is still fighting his wars in France, Scots take the opportunity to invade England. Catherine rode north while pregnant in full armor to command her troops. The King of Scots, Henry's brother-in-law, through his sister, Margaret Tudor, was killed at the Battle of Flodden, which was a really cool battle if anyone ever has time to do some research into it. Catherine sent Henry the bloody coat of the king, though she would have much rather sent him his head. Dang. Henry was doing poorly in France, and his wife's triumph was a huge disappointment to him. She even wrote to one of her girlfriends. She said, all this women's work is such hard work. Like, she was saying something like that. She was trying to make a pun on how war is not women's work, and she's having so much fun. It's so funny, like, the uh, fragile masculinity that we see in, I I think, a number of uh, marriages in the royal family. I mean... Just this last week, we lost Prince Philip. And, you know, rest in peace, Prince Philip. You would have loved your episode, your future episode on Fatal Fortunes. Um, <laughs> but there was definitely some sometimes in that marriage, I feel like, where he felt like, oh, I'm not getting the spotlight because I deserve it because I'm a man. But Or even dude. not even like I want the spotlight, I deserve it because I'm a man. It's just weird that we live in a society where you are the house of your father. We and do. for him, he is the only father in all of England whose children don't have his last name. Yeah, true. That's weird. That must feel weird. And he said, I felt like a bloody amoeba for it. But but in this case, just let your wife, you know, behead some people. Why not? Shouldn't you just be happy that you're not suddenly Scotland? That you don't su- you're not suddenly like the king of Calais, the small town in France that you control? Like, Yeah, I agree. Your cousin wife just finished that shit. She finished Scotland, okay? Henry returns in October and Catherine miscarries a boy that's almost full term and they're devastated as a couple again and this is just part of the slow descent that their relationship is having. In 1514, according to Dewhurst, the Venetian ambassador wrote his Senate in November and said that the queen has been delivered of a stillborn male of eight months to the great grief of the whole court. Holished, the chronicler, reported that in November, the queen was delivered of a prince that lived not long after. And John Stowe wrote, in the meantime, to wit, the month of November, the queen has delivered a prince which has not lived long. The moral of the story is that the child did not live. There's confusion as to whether she miscarried before Henry got back from France or afterward. Some people even try and romanticize it that like the day after the Battle of Flodden, she miscarriages, but that's not true. Fast forward to summer 1515. Catherine announces 
her next pregnancy, but no one takes note because hope is really gone. However, on February 18th, which is my mom's birthday, 1516, she finally gives birth to a long-awaited, healthy child, Mary, the future Mary I, at Greenwich Palace. Henry, although he was disappointed, said that healthy boys were soon to follow. A whole two years passes before Catherine's sixth and final pregnancy. She traveled to Oxford to pray at the shrine of St. Frideswide for a healthy son. But in November 1518, she gave birth to a girl who died in a few hours. Historians actually disagree on how many pregnancies she actually had, but the number is somewhere between six and nine. And you're saying Sad. that out of those, one is the, is the only child to have survived. Yeah, and the one child to survive yeah. had like endometriosis. So she has constant chronic problems. And what we actually think is the reason that Catherine's kids were all fucked up is because she was fasting during her pregnancies. So it would be like Feast of St. Da-da-da, she'd fast. It'd be Feast of St. This, she'd fast and, you know, she'd self-flagellate at the altar or something. So she was not treating her body in a way proper to have a healthy child, which is why the pregnancy with Mary, she's largely just like lying down. They're like, please don't go anywhere, please. And that's why we think this child survives. And also, guys, I'm not going to talk about McLeod syndrome. I watched a whole podcast about this woman who was a doctor and then she pivoted to history and how that's just not a thing. If Henry did have McLeod syndrome, Mary would not have happened as a healthy child. Period. So as we've just seen, this couple is experiencing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and that can only put such strain on your relationship. There's only so many times that you can hold each other's hand and say, no, it'll be better next time. So by 1525, we fast forward it a little bit. Six years after Catherine and Henry stopped being intimate, Henry falls in love with Anne Boleyn, one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. Henry began to believe that his marriage was cursed and sought confirmation from the Bible, which he interpreted to say that if a man marries his brother's wife, then the couple will be childless, even though Catherine and Arthur, quote unquote, never consummated their marriage. So it basically never existed. And in spite of their living child, Mary, going back to your point about dude who's just got to have it his way. It's like if and religion if Leviticus, have it their way too. Like, yeah, I'm like, if Leviticus said that, like, mm -hmm. huh? You have right. a healthy child. You aren't childless, sir. Soon, Henry becomes all consumed with getting an annulment from the Pope. The problem is, though, that the Pope got captured by Charles V in the sack of Rome. And Charles V is Catherine of Aragon's nephew via her sister, Joanna. So the Pope is reticent to do anything explicitly contrary to his captor. That's a pretty good lock Catherine's got him in then. You know, there's no way he's getting out of this marriage. No way. I'm sure. So the Pope says no. Okay. Three different church courts say no. Good. Catherine has been banished from court. Her old rooms are given to Anne Boleyn. And when Henry returned to Dover from Calais, he marries Anne Boleyn in 1333. So he's committing bigamy. Henry said, fuck the church. And he had his own crony Cranber declare the marriage to Catherine illegal and validates Henry and Anne's bigamous marriage she becomes dowager princess of wales but she never lets anyone call her that proclaiming herself the true queen until her dying day catherine has moved around from remote castle to remote castle for the remaining years of her life and her last residence is kim bolton castle which today is a boarding school if you ever want to send your kids there and it was the seat of the dukes of marlborough for 300 years after the tudor period until it got sold in the 1950s 
Catherine refused to leave her room except to attend mass and dressed only in a hair shirt and fast constantly, more resembling a monk than a queen. Henry said that if she and Mary had acknowledged Anne as Queen of England, then they would be permitted to see each other, but neither would and never saw each other ever again. I can only imagine how, how difficult it is to be cast out of a of a life like that. And you're saying that Mary was with her and stayed by her side. Didn't no, she didn't. Anne as the queen. They will, and then, you know, that's good. Yeah, that she, she stayed by that. her side in the mental sense, but they never yeah. were allowed to see each other. Oh, my God. Wow. Yep. The people who had sympathy for them smuggled letters between them. But, of course, it was assumed that they would foment an insurrection if they did ever meet up. Even in Catherine's last letter to Henry, she still calls him Lord King and loving husband. She says, The hour of my death, now drawing on, the tender love I owe you forceth me, my case being such, to commend myself to you, and to put you in remembrance with a few words of health, and safeguard of your soil, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters, and before the care and pampering of your body, for the which you have cast me into many calamities, and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything, and I wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest I commend unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father unto her, as I have heretofore desired. I entreat you also, on behalf of my maids, to give them marriage portions, which is not much, they being but three. For all my other servants, I solicit the wages due them, and a year more, lest they be unprovided for. Lastly, I make this vow, that mine eyes desire you above all things. So it's dubious as to whether Catherine actually wrote this, but all historians have agreed that she would have said something like this. Because you know how... It happens with letters. Basically, all of Henry's letters to Anne Boleyn have actually ended up in the Vatican archives somehow. So I could totally see like the Venetian ambassador or Chapuis or something, the king just like handing him this note and then like jotting it down really quick. But the one that we have is not the original. And ugh, reading that just makes you so sad. It's like, yeah. damn, this guy is literally, what year is it? It's 1536. 36. Yeah. This guy has trapped you for 11 years. 11. And I mean, if you look at it, her whole life has been a trap since day one. She's always been destined to be married off, be, you know, moved around and not really given any agency. But, you know, I think it seems like she she made the best with what she had. Um, and that is really, you know, really depressing to read that in her final days, that might be how she was feeling. I think that probably the best time of Catherine's life was when her son Henry was born those 56 days and then the summer that she was regent and won that battle. I was I about to that say was probably the best. that must have been like such a highlight of like being in a battle like that when your whole life you're just like held back and now you're finally like able to really do something. Um, yeah, that must have been great. So Catherine dies at that same castle, Kim Bolton, in January 1536. The following day, the news reaches the king. And at the time, there were rumors that she was poisoned because they did an autopsy. But I'm like, if you don't know anything about medicine, what's the point of doing an autopsy? You're not yeah, going to find like, anything because you don't know what you're looking at. Let's have dirty hands inside this person to make swollen belly. Also, we know how poison works. That's not adding up. People think that she's poisoned because there's a black spot on her heart, but actually doctors today believe that that was a sign of cancer. 
According to Chronicler Edward Hall, Anne Boleyn wore yellow for mourning, which was interpreted in various ways. They interpreted it to mean that a Anne did not mourn. They interpreted it to mean that they wanted to like make a great show of their new daughter Elizabeth to the court in spite of Catherine's death. Or allegedly, yellow is a color of mourning in Spain, but I've never heard of that. Yeah, I've always seen yellow as like a very happy color. I don't know what Spain's deal is, but I have also not heard of anything like that coming from Spain. But anyway, most people saw this as as vulgar and as distasteful as we do here today. So even though Anne and Henry are both wearing yellow, they're both outwardly projecting uh, this very weird mixed signal attitude. Privately later that night, they're both sobbing. Because I bet you've realized... We moved heaven and earth to get married when we could have just waited another three years for this woman to die. True, and now there's all this controversy, I'm sure, surrounding Anne. So, of that course, must and been. she's she's an episode, guys, this year in this season. So get ready, and we're gonna have historical AF podcast on to do um an Anne Boleyn quiz show. So not to get too much into Anne, but also another thing: imagine these two women who had the master-servant relationship suddenly having that flipped on its head, having their lives be inseparable from one another. You can't talk about Catherine of Aragon without talking about Anne Boleyn. You can't talk about Anne Boleyn without talking about Catherine of Aragon. So Henry and Anne, they're crying. They're upset. They're like, why did we just wear yellow? We're such dicks. And Anne miscarries a son the day of Catherine's funeral. Catherine was buried at Peterborough Cathedral with ceremony due to her position as um, the Dowager Princess of Wales, but not as a queen. Henry did not attend the funeral and forbade Mary to attend. And one of her maids that came with her from Spain, Maria de Salinas, was her chief mourner. And Maria, you know, she's a really interesting character for the time because she came over from Spain when she's a young girl to England, marries into the English court, etc. And then Henry, when he's keeping Catherine in confinement. Basically, she says, I don't give a fuck. I'm 50 years old. I'm getting on my horse in the middle of winter and I'm going to go nurse my friend in her final illness. And she doesn't get like thrown into the tower for that or anything. But I'm. It's. it was really cool to see a woman take agency by the balls and say, no, I'm getting on the horse. I'm going. I don't care that Henry's about to go on his crazy execution phase. Maybe this is like just before Henry's like fatal jousting accident. Like that fucked up his brain. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, so in 1535, I believe, Henry is jousting to do, like, they're celebrating, like, the birth of Elizabeth, stuff like that, and he doesn't Mm. pull his visor down. Oof. And gets stabbed in the eye. Ouch. Yeah. And then, of course, what's-her-face, Anne Boleyn miscarries another boy because he's unconscious for, like, four and a half hours. He wakes up. He's a different person. The sweet, loving ginger king that we... Basically, he goes from being Prince Harry to Rasputin eight seconds. But, guys, that is the life of Catherine of Aragon. I'm no, I know that this was long and short at the same time. I know that there were probably details that we left out that you probably thought were really cool. But, you know, we've been sitting here for 56 minutes on a Sunday morning. And I barely feel like we even scratched the surface. So we will leave in our show notes a bunch of books, documentaries, movies, TV shows that are all about Catherine of Aragon so you can learn what you want to learn about her. And uh, just a note, uh, whenever you see her uh, dressed as a dark-eyed, dark-haired Spanish beauty, she didn't look like that. She was ginger, 
pale, looked like every other royal of the time. She did not look like a Spaniard, just to be clear. And while we're still here, I want to plug my new Etsy shop called S&M Designs, where we sell knitwear and rugs. And you guys should all check it out. It drops on 420, so it should be out by the time this episode comes out. And I'd love if you guys checked it out. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Patreon. There is a special episode up there on Aristotle Onassis right now. And this episode that you're listening to now will be on Patreon earlier than it is on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, everywhere else that you watch it. And make sure to give us a like, subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. I personally really like the video version. I think that people appreciate it. We are Fatal Fortunes Podcast on YouTube. We are Fatal Fortunes on Instagram. Please check us out on social media and check out our website, fatalfortunes.com, where we have a bunch of show notes and fun blog posts, and you can learn so much more there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. On Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. See you next time.